traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B41, Samsi Garamus Hatra had fallen. Just sit with that for a minute. Hatra the Unconquerable, the city that had basically killed Optimus Trajan and dealt Septimius Severus a pair of defeats. Picture European Christians in 1453 on the fall of Constantinople. Shrink the scale and you'll find the parallel of Hatra's fall to the Emesenes. After all, Hatred relied on the sun god Shamash like Emesa on Elagabal. And if the sun god withdrew his protection from one city, what confidence the other could long endure? If Samsigarimus had such thoughts, it'd be pretty hard to blame him. The past six years had been brutal for friends of Rome. First, the murder of his distant cousin Severus Alexander by one of his own soldiers on the Rhine. Then, insult to injury, the elevation of that soldier, Maximinus Thrax, to emperor. As fate would have it, Samsigarimus's father Uranius had also died in 235, so at least he'd been spared the full measure of Rome's debasement. On Uranius's death, Ten-year-old Samsi Garamus inherited his role as Emesene High Priest, the youngest since his cousin Elagabalus. Though Thrax had purged the imperial court of Alexander's advisors, he'd never tried to snuff out his Syrian relations, which was mildly surprising since one of the first attempts on Thrax's life was by a body of eastern archers loyal to Alexander. But, to be honest, Thrax was focused on the Rhine, and he had little time or interest in the Roman East. Unfortunately for the Syrians, there was another ruler, with time, interest, and a powerful army, who decided conditions were ripe for another campaign. In 237 AD, Ardashir led Sassanid forces across the Tigris into Mesopotamia. 
His first target was Nisibis, that constant bone of contention, and he managed to take the city with little difficulty. Moving west, his army swept into Osrawini and captured the former provincial capital of Karai, ancient Haran. It's not clear whether the legions based in Nisibis and Rasena were killed, captured, or driven off, but the result for the Persians was the same. They were close to Edessa, to the Euphrates, and to the major river crossing at Zugma. And for a moment, the cities of Syria felt an acute sense of vulnerability. But then, miraculously, Ardashir turned back east, and his real target soon became apparent. For the Romans, Hatred always been more of a would-be-nice than a must-have. After all, the city lay at the furthest fringes of the imperial frontier, and all it had ever threatened was Roman control of the upper Tigris. But to a king bent on restoring the former Achaemenid Persian Empire, an independent Hatra was a logical impossibility. If its stubborn defiance wasn't maddening enough, the city now boasted a Roman garrison. No wise king would let an enemy's dagger linger so close to his heart, and Ardashir decided that Hatra had to fall. In 238 AD, Samsigirimus learned the city and its aged king, Sanatruk II, had been besieged by the Sassanids. Which, on the one hand, well, good luck, if experience was any guide. But on the other hand, Ardashir had nothing but time and no one to challenge his plans. The only two legions based nearby had already been effectively neutralized, and the big question was, what would the Roman emperor do? Sorry, in 238, the big question was, just who the heck was emperor? After three years of unpopular rule, Maximinus Thrax had been killed, much like he killed his predecessor, Alexander. The spark had been a tax revolt way down in Roman Africa. Through a convoluted set of events, the provincial governor, Gordian, had been elevated to Roman emperor, along with his son and co-emperor, Gordian II. The Roman Senate had backed the pair, I mean anything, to get rid of Thrax, but the would-be coup was smothered in its crib. The governor of neighboring Numidia swept in and killed Gordian II, and the elder Gordian had hanged himself with his belt. And suddenly, the treacherous Senate back in Rome found themselves uncomfortably exposed. As Maximinus prepared to march on the capital, the Senate elected two of their own, Pupianus and Balbinus, as co-Augusti. And though Pupianus was commonly known as Maximus, I'm going to keep calling him Pupianus, because it's fun to say, and I'm apparently 13. Speaking of which, the citizens of Rome staged mass demonstrations in favor of their preferred imperial candidate. Gordian's 13-year-old grandson, Gordian III, which maybe they were feeling nostalgic for the days of the well-advised boy emperor Alexander, 
Whatever the reason, the Senate relented, and Gordian III was named Caesar. The ensuing conflict between Thrax and the Senate led to Thrax's assassination. A short time later, the two co-Augusti, Pupienus and Balbinus, were kidnapped by the Praetorian Guard and tortured to death in a bathhouse. All of which left the 13-year-old Gordian III as sole surviving Roman Emperor. The two years since Gordian's ascension saw the continuance of Hatra's siege, and the continuance of looking west for a Roman response. Then, in the fall of 240 AD, the grim news finally arrived. Hatra had been betrayed and captured by the Persians. An apocryphal story names the betrayer as Sanatruk's own daughter, Annadira. As the story goes, Shapur married the princess to reward her service, before eventually having her killed. But details aside, the fall of Hatra was an indisputable fact. Ardashir must have considered its value as a virtually impregnable fortress, a wealthy stop on the caravan route between Tesiphon and Singara, and a pilgrimage site of the ancient sun god Shamash. And the Persians valued forts and gold and their reputation for religious tolerance. But Hatra's greatest value was as an example of the fate of those who defied Sassanid power. Hatra was destroyed. I mean, not entirely destroyed. You can still see pictures online, and even Isis hasn't managed that feat. But it was damaged, depopulated, and abandoned to the desert, and would never again be inhabited. Ardashir celebrated his major victory by elevating his 25-year-old son, Prince Shapur, to Shahanshah, co-king of kings. With Hatra nullified, and both Karai and Nisibis in Persian hands, the Roman frontier was pushed back to the Euphrates. True, Edessa was, for some reason, for the moment, still Roman. But that didn't change the equation. Two eastern provinces and an allied kingdom had been effectively lost to the Sassanids. For two long years, the frontier remained quiet while the cities of Syria gleaned what intelligence they could. In the east, the Persians were using captured slaves and plundered wealth to build a brace of new cities, including Ram Ardashir, Rev Ardashir, Hormizd Ardashir in Elimius, Puz Ardashir on the Arabic side of the Persian Gulf, and Nud Ardashir near the ancient city of Nineveh. Ardashir also named four sub-kings to rule the major Sassanid provinces of Merv, Kerman, Seistan, and Aprenak, the future Nishapur. He also left local client kings in power in territories further afield, including Mekran, Erekosia, and Kushanshar in the Hindu Kush. Apart from these sub-kings and local rulers, Ardashir left the remaining provinces to be governed by Persian satraps. 
Meanwhile, out west, Gordian III had become the malleable tool of the Senate, the Army, and, most notoriously, the palace eunuchs. His mother was apparently more Bassiana than Julia Mamaya, and Gordian was left to fend for himself against a veritable army of bad influences. It was understandable, but dispiriting all the same, and only emphasized that the East was on its own. Samsigarimus was 17 when word reached Emesa that Ardashir was dead. And not even for a moment was this considered good news. Everyone all across the Near East knew that Shapur was every inch his father's son. At 27, he was an experienced combat veteran who'd cut his teeth in the conflict with Alexander. Since then, Rome had been consumed by civil war, while Sassanid power had only grown. Even worse for Syria, Shapur clearly inherited his father's territorial ambitions. Later that year came the real surprise— the Roman emperor was coming east. Details were sketchy, but Samsigarimus likely heard something along these lines. Gordian had been so impressed by the character and talents of his rhetoric instructor, a man named Timosithius, that he'd married the man's daughter and elevated him to praetorian prefect. Somewhat surprisingly, this had turned out to be an excellent move. In no time at all, Timosithius had emptied the palace of troublesome eunuchs and earned the respect of the Roman establishment. He'd also given 17-year-old Gordian a goal to focus his energies. The recapture of Cari and Nisibis from the Persians. The emperor agreed, the legions were assembled, and the doors to the temple of Janus were opened marking the official beginning of the great war against Persia. Little did anyone know at the time, but they'd never be closed again. It's highly possible the war was launched on word of Ardashir's death. And again, the Romans weren't really up to speed on the Sassanids. All they knew was that Parthian successions were frequently long and messy involving civil wars, divisions of territory, and a generally good climate for invasion. The Romans likely didn't factor in that, as co-king of kings, Shapur wielded supreme and uncontested power across the entire Persian Empire from the moment of Ardashir's death. In the fall of 242 AD, the Roman army arrived at Antioch. Though Gordian remained its titular head, it was commanded by the prefect Timosithius. There's no information on the number of legions, aside from the army being huge, but it was effectively composed of three parts. There were the western troops he'd brought along with him from the Rhine and Danube frontiers, the local legions from Cappadocia, Syria, and Arabia Petraea, and lastly, the surviving soldiers from Nisibis and Rosena who'd been driven out by the Persians. The last time the Romans had gathered a force that size was a decade earlier under Alexander. 
which, all things considered, maybe wasn't the most encouraging thought to dwell on. In the spring of 243 AD, Gordian's army set out from Antioch. And really, it'd be tough to argue either side had any real advantage. Both armies were huge, both leaders newly minted, and the only previous relevant conflict had ended in a stalemate. So, all things considered, the cities of Syria were likely relieved when they got word of the great Roman victory. After crossing the Euphrates, likely at Zugma, the Romans had marched south toward Carai, only to find it already abandoned by the Sassanids. Timosithius may have thought, like the conflict a decade earlier, the Persians had pulled back beyond the Tigris. If so, he'd have been surprised a few miles later when they met the Persian army near Rasena. We know zero details about the engagement aside from the fact that the Romans were victorious, a fact reinforced by the battle's absence from Persian records. According to Gordian's dispatch from the front, we restored Cari and other cities also to the Roman sway. We have penetrated as far as Nisibus, and, if it be pleasing to the gods, we shall even get to Tessaphon. Only may our prefect and father-in-law Timosithius prosper, for it was by his leadership and his arrangements that we accomplished these things, and shall, in the future, continue to accomplish them. No Roman emperor had made it to Tessaphon since Septimius Severus, and he'd faced a relatively weak Parthian king. If Gordian actually pulled it off, it'd be a staggering rebound for Roman fortunes, not to mention a shot in the arm for the new Gordian regime. From Nisibis, Gordian made his way south either along the Tigris or the Euphrates. He first passed through Arbaistan, the land of the Arabs, then Asoristan, land of the Babylonians. And somewhere along his journey, he entered an even more exotic region, the dark and mythical country of Obscuristan. Now, Obscuristan is a place where a single set of events go in and a variety of different stories come back out. Stories that are often irreconcilable. For example, it was on the borders of Obscuristan that Timosithius died. But was it from the onset of a sudden disease, or was it by treachery and poison? Well, there's really no way of knowing for sure because, you know, Obscuristan. Either way, Gordian lost his steady hand at the Roman helm. He replaced him as prefect and senior commander with a soldier named Marcus Julius Philippus. The temporary capital of Obscuristan was a place called Misik. Some sources place it 50 miles west of modern Baghdad, near the location of modern Fallujah, but no one knows for sure. And it was here wherever it was, that Shapur decided to halt the Roman advance. This time, there was no able Timosithius to lead the Roman charge. 
only the young emperor, his new prefect, and his various legionary commanders. And it was at Misik, deep in south-central Obscuristan, that one of several things happened. One story emerged that Gordian was victorious, or at least mainly so, and led his army safely back to Mesopotamia before mysteriously dying. Another story has Gordian leading the army north in retreat before being set upon and killed by his own troops. Another story fixes blame for his death on the conniving prefect Philippus, along with his brother and fellow praetorian Gaius Julius Priscus. And then there's, to me, the most likely version— and maybe I give it a bit more credence because it's the only one written in stone. In the cliffs of Nakshi Rustam, there's a famous relief and an equally famous inscription. The relief is carved in the superlative style of the early Sassanid rulers. It shows the Persian king of kings Shapur sitting atop a magnificent horse and let's say interacting with three different Roman emperors. He grabs one emperor by the wrist, a clear symbol of capturing him alive. And, oh yes, we'll be getting to that story a bit down the road. The second emperor is bowing before him in a clear sign of submission, which is a story we'll get to in just a minute. The third Roman emperor... Well, the third Roman emperor is being trampled beneath the hooves of Shapur's horse. And we can also read that symbolism pretty clearly. A few episodes back, we talked about another relief, also at Nakshi Rustam, of the investiture of Ardashir by Ahura Mazda. That relief also featured a figure trampled beneath the horse's hooves the Parthian king Artabanus, who'd just been killed by Ardashir. Sassanid reliefs invariably depict slain enemies in this same style. So if you're beneath the hooves of Shapur's horse, it means that Shapur has killed you. The nearby inscription relates the tale in the King of Kings' own words. When at first we had become established in the empire, Gordian Caesar raised in all of the Roman Empire a force from the Goth and German realms and marched on Asoristan against the empire of Iran and against us. On the border of Asoristan and Misik, a great frontal battle occurred. Gordian Caesar was killed and the Roman force was destroyed. And, okay, sure, you can chalk it up to Persian propaganda, but Shapur really had little reason to lie. The inscription was written around 30 years later, and we know for a fact that Misik took place. The battle's absence from Roman records is likely comparable to the Persian silence on Rasena. Either way, as long as we're here, I'll let Shapur continue the story. And the Romans made Philip Caesar. Then Philip came to us for terms, and, to ransom their lives, gave us 500,000 dinars and became tributary to us. 
And for that reason, we have renamed Missick as Peraz Shapur, Shapur the Victorious. So, yeah, the recently elevated prefect Philippus had been elevated once again to Roman Emperor. You might know him better as Philip the Arab. Philip and his older brother Gaius Julius Priscus hailed from the oasis of Shaba in Arabia Petraea, hence his name Philip the Arab. Though it's maybe worth mentioning that he wasn't necessarily Rome's first ethnically Arab emperor. He may have been, but that honor may have also belonged to either Elagabalus or Severus Alexander. Both were at least half-Arab, to the extent their family was true Arab Amasene, and both of their fathers were also Syrian, though they could have been Amasene or Aramaic or another local ethnicity. As to how the two brothers engineered Philip's elevation, well, there's zero information because, you know, Obscuristan. But he wouldn't be the first prefect to take on the job. At the current moment, the Romans needed someone who could get them home alive. And Philip, with his brother's help, convinced them that he was that guy. His plan, as it happened, was pretty straightforward. The sources agree that Philip paid Shapur a veritable mountain of gold. But while the gold was certainly nice, Shapur also wanted territory. A few of you out there may recall the kingdom of Caucasian Iberia. Iberia had been friendly and allied to Rome for going on a century, and its previous king, Radamistus III, had been honored by Antoninus Pius. Due to its critical location, Iberia had one very critical job. To block northern tribes, particularly the Alans, from crossing the Caucasian passes. Consequently, the Iberians manned a line of forts, largely funded by payments from Rome. Their latest king, Bakur I, also happened to be an Arsacid, the former Parthian royal dynasty overthrown by Ardashir. He was the grandson of King Rev I, last mentioned way back in episode B31. Shapur told Philip that, from now on, the Sassanids would control the passes. And the money you used to pay the Iberians, you can just pay that directly to us now. Every year, in perpetuity. Just make the checks out to Shapur, King of Kings. Which is how, in exchange for his soldiers' lives, Philip handed the formerly friendly kingdom of Iberia over to Persian rule, where it's duly listed as a subject kingdom in later Sassanid inscriptions. As a betrayal, it was bad enough, but it also left the kingdom of Armenia effectively surrounded by the Persians. So, looping back around, the figure in Shapur's relief bowing in submission... That's Philip the Arab, who's just agreed to pay the Persians annual tribute. No Roman emperor ever submitted to anything remotely so humiliating. 
and you might have thought his reign would be over the minute word got out. But as he left Obscuristan for Roman territory, Philip spun off one final epic story. He'd be claiming the title of Persicus Maximus for his great victory over the Persians. To Samsi Garamus in the cities of Syria, the only hard facts were these. One Roman emperor had entered Obscuristan, and another emperor had emerged. And, as it happened, that new Roman emperor was heading right back west. Because, score, he'd assumed power near the thousandth birthday of the city of Rome's foundation. And he already had the party planners on speed dial. But not to worry, cities of Syria, because I'm leaving you my older brother, Priscus. His official title will be Rector Orientis, but it'll mainly translate to tax collector. Almost lost in the background noise was an interesting piece of local news. The Palmyrenes had elevated one of their own. He'd been given the title Ras Tadmor, chief of the Palmyrenes. From what Samsi Garamus could gather, it gave the man unprecedented power over both the Palmyrene government and military. On his way out the door, Philip gave imperial approval by making this same figure a Roman senator. All in all, an extraordinary coup by a young Palmyrene noble named Odinothus.